Well, once again, turn with me to uh, Luke's Gospel, and we'll continue the story in Luke uh, Luke chapter 24, and read the next uh, 12 verses. So they're resting on the Sabbath, and then on the first day of the week, uh, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, marveling at what had happened. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, As we come to your word, again, we ask that you would help us to meditate on it and to learn lessons from it, to be encouraged by it, uh, all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's Easter Day. It's uh, the greatest day traditionally in the, the Christian calendar. The day we mark the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, in the early days of the church, and for much of its history ever since, the resurrection has been at the core of the gospel message. Uh, To put it bluntly, without the resurrection, there is no gospel. There is nothing to to speak of. So the resurrection is central to the gospel message. And it was that message that propelled the early church out into the world with a message of hope and conviction, and it changed the world. It moved from a a small provincial city in the Middle East, Jerusalem, to the ends of the earth. And now all over the world, people are proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ is risen and is reigning today. And the reason that that has happened is because having known that Jesus has risen from the dead, they know that sin and therefore death has been defeated and that forgiveness and salvation is offered to all who will Christ for he alone holds out hope for eternity well sadly today uh, in across England across the British Isles uh, this message of the resurrection no doubt will be watered down in various ways some people want to believe it is a myth it will be seen as a Perhaps a metaphor for spiritual uh, renewal. Uh, scientists will say death. I, I read a tweet yesterday uh, by uh, 
a professor at the University of Birmingham who's a professor of public engagement of science. And uh, she said, uh, uh, just a reminder today that uh, uh, dead people don't rise from the dead. Which actually, when you think about it, is not a scientific statement. You you've got to check every single death to check that that's true. Uh, so it's a statement of faith on their part. But of course, the evidence is here. It's here in the eyewitness testimony uh, of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we could go through all of that evidence, and some of it is in, in this passage here today. But, nonetheless, in, the, in our society today, we'll find people who will come at the, the, the story of the resurrection with some, some novel angle, but they will miss the obvious fact. That the tomb into which Jesus' body was laid was empty. And everything else flowed from that. This morning I went to look at uh, Luke's account of this discovery of the empty, empty tomb and where Jesus was laid. And all the gospel writers, of course, have an account of this. Um, that go along with his death on the cross. And therefore we cannot overstate the importance and centrality of the resurrection to the gospel message. And if you look at the, the various accounts of the resurrection of the gospel writers, you'll notice that they're not all uniform. They don't all say exactly the same thing. One writer will mention one thing, another writer will mention another thing, and maybe some writer will miss out something else. And this is evidence, of course, of independent sources observing an event. And the differences are not so much, they're not evidence of error, but they are evidence of emphasis in, on the part of each of the writers. Each writer has his own emphasis and the things that he wants to bring out from the story for his purposes. One of the unique details in this story is the mention of Joanna. I don't know if you would pick that up, but nobody else mentions Joanna. And Joanna is only mentioned in Luke. And uh, she is mentioned in uh, chapter 8, verse 3, where she is described as someone who is healed by Jesus, who was a, 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 household, a manager of the household of Herod. And therefore, no doubt, she was quite wealthy. Perhaps she was one of those people that uh, provided support for the, the 12 disciples and Jesus. Why does Luke mention Joanna here? Uh, she seems to have no purpose to the story in itself. But you have to remember that this is a, Luke is writing a, a, a collated account drawn from eyewitness testimony. And that he's writing to a friend, he's writing to Theophilus. You read the first few verses of his gospel, and this character Theophilus comes up. And some have suggested that Joanna is known to Theophilus. And so Luke puts Joanna in there just to mention to Theophilus that person that you know is there and you know you could go and ask Joanna what actually happened if you don't believe me this is what Luke is doing he's trying to convince Theophilus and so he's trying to convince us and so you find these little details in the text that demonstrates what Luke is trying to do we have to take on face value that these gospel accounts are not simply stories, but they're eyewitness accounts that at the time could have been verified by the readers. 
Well, in this count, in this, these 12 verses in Luke 24, uh, there's, there's a certain momentum to the story. Perplexity. Empty. It then moves to remembering. They begin to remember what Jesus taught in his earthly ministry. And then there is telling. Telling the other disciples. So let's work through those three things. First of all, perplexity. Uh, and you'll notice that there's a cloud of... As, as the women come to... Uh, are preparing for the death of Jesus. There is a, cl- a cloud over this group of women. These are women who have come from Galilee. Uh, they've followed Jesus southwards to Jerusalem. And it's just amazing. I think perhaps how much with Jesus. What an amazing experience it must have been to be with Jesus, to see him teaching and preaching, to see people being changed by the preaching and teaching, to see them being healed, demons cast out, all kinds of miracles happening. Yet in the last few days, the last few hours, they have seen Jesus arrested. They've seen him tried. They've seen him mocked and beaten and finally crucified amongst criminals. And they've then seen him buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. A man who eventually came out bravely as a believer. And so these women, they have experienced the highs of being with Jesus. But now they're of the lows, as it were. And it seems that this great experience with Jesus has now come to an end. And he's dead and he's buried. And all that remains for them is to complete. They've got some spices that they use to present. This seems to be women's work and in this story. Where have they gone? Uh, they, they've lost all hope. They're gathered somewhere else, wondering what to do next. But the women are about the business of dealing with Jesus' body. And when they get there, the stone is moved. And they look inside. And there's no body there. And they're confused. They're perplexed. Seriously, wouldn't you be? Where's the body gone? <laughs> they believed he was dead. They'd seen it with his, their own eyes. This is something they knew about. This is something they understood. They knew, knew to expect a body sitting there, wrapped up. And it wasn't there. Confusion. Remember Luke's friend Theophilus is reading this as well. And no doubt he's expecting, the, as he's reading this story, and he's thinking, what are they going to do uh, when they get to the tomb? And maybe he's confused as well. Maybe he's reading this and he's thinking, why is the tomb empty? And that's what we should be reading. If we were to read this for the first time, so why is the tomb empty? Why is the, where's the body gone? Friends, this kind of confusion is the kind when people take a closer look at Jesus and they begin to look closely at the life that he lived and the death that he died, people can often assume that they have Jesus all sorted in their minds. But when they actually come to look at the story, they distinctly different about it. They make assumptions. They set the parameters of what's permissible. And then they discover the actual Jesus as he truly is presented to us in the gospel. And it sends people into a period of confusion. And I wonder if that's anyone here today. That maybe you're confused about Jesus. 
Many people have become Christians this way, through a path of confusion and perplexity. Somebody might have come to, to believe in Jesus as a good teacher, or a moral man, or a social activist, or some kind of great figure in history. But none of that, of course, gets to what he really is. That he is the Son of Man, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who reigns over sin and death and hell, rose again from the dead. And the clearest evidence of that, of course, is that simple truth. The, t- the two... So, perplexity. Perplexity. But then we're remembering. In this state of confusion, these women, two men inside the tomb. Uh, and it seems to me... Uh, for the simple reason that uh, ordinary men don't have dazzling apparel. Now, I know that some of you have got some really fancy clothes. But it's not dazzling apparel, <laughs> let me tell you. Not like this. And clearly their appearance, and at the sight of these two men, these women get on their knees with their faces to the ground, full of fear, and they're absolutely terrified. And then they're asked this simple question. Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? That's a question that's pregnant with assumptions. But it's such an important question, even for us today, to ask. Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? You see, it's possible to look at the Gospels and to look at Jesus here and still in the back of your mind to treat Jesus as a dead man. Academics do that. They do that all the time. They treat him as an historical figure. They see the Bible perhaps as evidence of his existence. And there are plenty of other documents that prove his existence. But to them, he is a dead person who died 2,000 years ago. And they can talk about the lasting legacy of Jesus, that Jesus has left throughout history. They can point to the institutions that uh, have arisen as a result of the gospel going out into the Western world. Uh, You can... Look at our legal system and see how uh, the Bible is kind of underpins much of our, our legal system, or at least it did, or our education system is founded upon Christian principles. And sometimes we can talk, as politicians have occasionally, they, they speak about a living legacy of Christ in our society. But they won't speak about a living Christ because to them, Jesus died. And we can do that today. Some of us may like to talk about Jesus, but to us, he may well be a dead man who lived 2,000 years ago. These words of the angels challenge us. Jesus is the one who is living. Jesus is the one who is not here, but has risen. Why do you treat him as though he's dead? And the angels then, you know, they, they, go, they, they remind these women of what Jesus had already taught them. If you look at verse 7, uh, the angels say this, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And if you know anything about Luke's Gospel or any of the Gospel writers for that matter, you'll know that Jesus began to talk about his 
death and his resurrection quite early on in, in Luke's Gospel. It's Luke chapter 9. He begins to speak about his death and his resurrection. That he's going to be raised. And he did so several times. But clearly his followers at the time didn't believe it. They were puzzled by it. It made no sense to them. And here at this point, the women see the empty tomb. They're told by this, these two angels that he is risen. And only now does the penny begin to drop. And all those things begin to make sense. This is the, the very Son of Man of whom the prophet Daniel spoke of, who would appear before the Ancient of Days, who would receive an eternal kingdom, is that Son of Man who has now literally been literally bodily raised from the dead. And now everything changes for them. I wonder if you've ever had that kind of experience, where you discover something about Jesus and everything changes for you. It is the experience of many people. They move from thinking they have Jesus all figured out and put in, into an intellectual box that they can park to one side. But then they come across something about Jesus that shakes their world. And the penny drops. And then the puzzling thing begins to make sense. And they can come to the conclusion that this Jesus is indeed Lord. If I may indulge in a bit of personal testimony... That's what happened to me when I was a 17-year-old. I'd been to Sunday school. I'd heard the, all the teaching about Jesus and about how he, as, as, a young, as a young boy, I should live like Jesus and be like Jesus and live a good moral life. But it wasn't until I was 17 that I really believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And that changed everything for me. And it you see, realizing that Jesus rose, rises from the dead, has risen from the dead, necessitates you calling him Lord and putting your life at his disposal in everything. You can't get away from it. That's when you know you believed in the Lord Jesus. When you put your life at his disposal. So we've seen perplexity, we've seen, to, seen it moving to recollection and remembering, and now we see telling the good news. The story continues, and it becomes a story of telling this good news. They go back to the, the other eleven. Remember, Judas has already betrayed Jesus and is no longer part of the, uh, that group of disciples. And uh, they are mentioned here as apostles. Look, uh, calls them apostles. The ones that Jesus would eventually, after his resurrection, send out into the world. And it's interesting that these eleven, they're nowhere to be seen except at this point, where the women come back to them and begin to tell them what they've seen and what they've heard. And let me ask you this. Were these eleven disciples, these full to leap up and say, Rejoice! Jesus has risen again! Uh, not, not a bit of it. They called it idle tales. They didn't believe a word. Idle tales. Now reflect for a moment 
and what Luke is doing here and on the validity of the message that he is bringing. Uh, should anyone believe this message? Should we believe it even as we read? You see, in the first century, there are all sorts of reasons why you shouldn't believe this. You know, if you were going to write a story and make up a story about a saviour who would come and die and then rise again, uh, let me ask you, first of all, would you, t would you explain it as women having discovered it? Now, that may not mean much to us today, but in the first century Israel, in Palestine, women's testimony was discounted. So you wouldn't write a story with women in it if you wanted credibility. And the other aspect of this is that the whole account of Luke, if the, if the whole account of Luke was a made-up story, would you portray the disciples these eleven, as not having believed it. You see, there's an air of reality about this whole thing that's rooted in the first century. It has all the hallmarks of a true account. That these disciples, in their superior patronising way, look down on these women and call them idle tales. This is not a made-up story. This is the true story. Now, it's this kind of mockery and patronising attitudes that, that we even face today. So what happens when we share the good news of the gospel? People start mocking, making fun. Especially when you think, you're talking to people who think they, they know what they're talking about. They'll tell us that we are believing idle tales. But there was one person in this story who thought at least he ought to go and check this out. And that was Peter. Uh, John tells us that John went as well. But, but Luke focuses on Peter here. And Peter runs to the tomb. He goes in and he finds it empty. And all he can see there is a pile of, of linen cloths. John tells us they were folded. If you're just going to steal a body, you don't, you don't fold up the, the grave clothes. You take the whole lot. But now in verse 12, here's Peter at what had, what had happened. And that word marveling, it really means wondering. It means puzzling over. It means trying to kind of fit everything together, trying to make sense of it all. He's had, had all his assumptions. He's trying to fit it together. And friends, this is the kind of pattern that, again, people face when they come face to face with the risen Christ, even today. That for a time the world is thrown into confusion here and then clarity comes then a moment of clarity seems to come what you've discovered and your life is never the same again I just ask you this morning as the risen saviour to answer the question what difference does this risen Jesus make to your life today character that you read about occasionally then you have never met him and you do not know him and you're still in your sins but if you have met him then your life is never going to be the same again I say to our children, our young people here today 
If you meet Jesus Christ, your life will never be the same again. I was a 17-year-old, as I said, when I met Jesus Christ. And I don't want to get all spooky on you, but it, it kind of felt in that moment that it was as though Jesus Christ was in the room with me. I know he wasn't physically, but it felt like he was. Because I believed that he had risen from the dead and everything changed. And I also believed that he had the right to ask anything of me because he had risen. And the implications of that took me a year, a year of wrestling, but essentially. Finally came to the point where I said, yes, I want to be counted amongst the number of believers. I want to be known as a Christian. I want to know Jesus Christ. And maybe that's true for you as well. You need to go through a period of wrestling with God before you finally come to him and everything changes for you. Wonder at everything that he's done and be changed by him. Have your eyes been opened to this wonderful risen saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Jesus and all that he has done for us in his death and resurrection. We thank you that this changes everything. Not just for a few people in first century Palestine and Jerusalem, but for everybody today who meets Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we pray that this life-transforming power would come upon us here today and would come upon this town of Solihull, more and more men and women would discover the risen Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.